We're going to continue in our sermon series looking at um, First Peter. And we're turning our attention this morning to verse 13 down to verse 19. It's uh, words that some of us will maybe know. Um, one of the verses in it is particularly kind of well known when it talks about be holy for I'm holy. But we'll get to that in a few moments. But let's read from First Peter chapter 1. And we're going to read verse 13 down to verse 19. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written... You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot." Amen. Remember, you'll probably have heard it said when you were in school, whenever you see a therefore, you're to ask, what's it therefore? And it's very similar when we read the scriptures and we see therefore, we have to ask, why is it there? What has just come before it? And it's helpful when we journey through a, a, a book of the Bible together because we're, we're traveling with the context and we're, we're seeing where, where Peter's argument is going throughout his epistle. But just in case you weren't here or you've forgotten, let me give you a very, very quick um, recap. This, therefore, is pointing back to the first opening 12 verses that Peter has brought at the opening of his letter. And what he is referring to with this, therefore, it's, it's like a springboard into the next part of his, um, his, his letter where he has just been speaking about the fact that we are God's people, that we have been chosen, that we've been predestined, that we have a living hope, that we have an inheritance, that God is guarding us. Just as he's guarding our inheritance, he is too guarding us through faith. Even though we go through trials in this life and there's sufferings, we thought about that last week, that actually through God's grace and mercy and his sovereignty in those difficult times, our faith is being refined. And although we do not see him, we love him. We haven't seen him with our visible eyes, but his, his gospel and grace have, have awoken our hearts towards him. And we love him with everything that we have. And in faith, we will receive the salvation of our souls. That salvation, which is so wonderful. And like we said at the end of last Sunday, that, that Peter is trying to ramp up just this sense of awe and gratitude by pointing back to the prophets saying, they, 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 they spoke about it. They, they, they marveled at what God would do, that his gospel plan, his redemption plan, his plan of salvation. But, but it's not just the prophets of old, but actually the angels. They long to look into it. Such is the incredible nature of the salvation that God has won for his people. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What we've seen in the opening 12 verses is, is Peter opening up this concise and 
beautiful insight into this wonderful theology of salvation, what God has been doing on behalf of his people. But what he shows us is that the truth of salvation, it cannot just remain as abstract theology. It cannot just be doctrine on paper that we speak about and that just floats about. It needs to land. It needs to be birthed in our lives. It needs to penetrate our hearts. It doesn't just float about there, but what he shows us and what he goes on to say is actually through this exhortation that he gives, through this strong encouragement that he's about to bring to his audience is that what you believe needs to be seen in your life. You have this wonderful salvation. You have this incredible inheritance. You've been chosen. Therefore, let it impact your life. This wonderful truth needs to penetrate our hearts and change us from the inside out. And we see that. We talked about the means of our election through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. It's a spirit at work and active in us that brings these things, brings the fruit of the Spirit to blossom in our lives as we abide in Christ. But friends, what we need to remember, and I love that Peter's done it this week because there's no other way to do it. We need to remember that the exhortations that he brings in his letter are grounded in the truth of our salvation. The truth of the chosenness that we have, that came first. So when he goes on and he speaks about this fruit that we need to be seeing in our lives, they are grounded in salvation. They're grounded in the hope of the gospel that we already have. That's already ours because we've already been chosen. We've already been saved. We already have an inheritance. Therefore, that stuff is already secured. It's safe. It's like locked in the greatest bank in the world, in heaven, where Christ is guarding it for you, his people. No one can touch it. No one can diminish it. It's yours because you've been chosen by God himself. We're to live from the knowledge of the security that we have in Christ. That stuff, like I said, it's already secured. And, and sadly, what happens is, is that people confuse the order that this comes in. And what happens then is that we think that we need to do these good works and we need to bear this good fruit so that we can be saved. That's the wrong way around. That's a disastrous way to put it. Because what you have then is a works-based righteousness. And it's only through Christ's righteousness. We thought about that a few weeks ago. Jehovah Saint Kenyu, the Lord who is my righteousness. He imputes his righteousness into us. He gives it to us. It's already done. You don't need to try and win God's affection. You don't need to try and win God's love. It's already there. It's why Christ came. The sign of his love was Christ died for you. All that stuff is already secure. Your salvation, your hope, it's living. It's, it's safe. But out of that exhortation, out of that, sorry, out of that truth and that knowledge of security that we have in Christ... Peter brings this exhortation that should be grounded in the hope of the gospel that's already urged, that, that we already have. And we have an imperative here in verse 13. And what's an imperative? Well, it's the thing that takes most emphasis, most importance in the verse. And the thing that's the imperative in verse 13, the thing that is of most importance in verse 13 is the setting your hope. That is the imperative in this verse. We'll see that hope is, hope is a, a theme that 
we journey with throughout Peter's epistle, and we, we, we understand why that is, and we think of it, you know, they're in, they're in persecution, they're in exile, they're going through hardships. No wonder Peter looks to encourage them and keep on reminding them of this hope that they have. The preparing of your mind is done so that you can set your hope on the grace that we brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here we see a strong link then between what has just been said and where Peter now wants to take his letter through this exhortation, through this strong encouragement that he brings to his audience. And again, he does this thing, just like we saw in verse 7, where he, he says what's to come, what is future, should impact here. The hope we have in Christ which is a future hope, should be impacting us now because it's also a present hope that we have. The future promise that we have needs to impact our present reality. So he's been speaking about we have this living hope, which is, we thought about, you know, and the inheritance, imperishable, so on, so on. But now he says, set your hope. This hope is stronger than just like merely wishing or, you know, kind of, yeah, that merely wishing, that kind of vagueness that we have in, when we use that word hope here. I hope that so-and-so wins the Super Bowl. It's, it's a mere vagueness. We, we have no, um, nowhere to anchor that hope. It's just a, a wish that we have, but not the hope in Scripture. It is a certain, a sure, a steadfast hope. And we need to set our hope. And Peter instructs as to how we set our hope fully on grace. He tells us how we do that by preparing our minds and by being sober-minded. And this is a really important part because many of you will know or maybe have guessed that I, I do have some sort of charismatic leanings within my theology. And I think this is one of the things that charismatics need to remember is that it's not just airy-fairy kind of floating about stuff. There's a preparation of our mind. There's a sober-mindedness that we need to have. This isn't just kind of organized chaos. We have, we're prepared in our minds. We're, we need to be sober-minded. So what does it mean to prepare your minds? Well, in the Greek, it more literally reads, and, and it gives us this, this image of um, Gird up the loins of your mind. That's the kind of literal translation in the Greek. Gird up the loins of your mind. Meaning, and, and what that means is that you, you tuck your loins, the, the, the garments that you would wear, which was like, and, and remember what I said is that Peter, we'll see him do it again, and he's done it a lot, and he's doing it here again just now. He keeps pointing back to the Old Testament. There's loads of Old Testament um, verses and references and analogies and images that he draws on throughout his letter. And here we have another Old Testament overtone with the girding up of one's loins. So what's, what does that mean, and what does that look like? Well, in ancient days, if you can imagine like a really long tunic, that, that's what the loins that he's speaking about was. And, and if someone wanted to run, they were restricted by how far they could move their legs. You know, I, I personally have, wouldn't know this, but I'm sure if 
women could testify, if you're wearing a dress at a wedding, you can't walk that fast because your, your legs are restricted. There's only so far that your leg can go in front of you. That's why I love a kilt. I can run as fast as I want as my legs will take me. But actually here what he's saying, and that's the image that we have, is that gird up your loins. And what they would do, the men would do, is they, they would pull up the loins, these long tunics that we would, they would have, which restricted their mobility. They would pull it up and they'd pull it through their legs and they'd wrap it round their waist, effectively making ancient pair of shorts. And it allowed them to run really fast. And it was something they would do instantly. It wasn't something you would meander about. It was as if you were seeing something happen. You needed to go and deal with it. You'd gird up your loins. You'd pull them up. You'd pull them through your legs. You'd tie them around your waist. And off you would go. And the image that Peter is wanting to show us here is the instant response that we need to have in our mind towards what Christ is saying and what scripture is saying. This instant obedience to God. That's the image he's drawing. Don't waste time dithering and trying to, you know, walk fast. Just hike it up and get on with it. That's really what Peter is saying here by gird up the loins of your mind. Get on with it. Be instant in your response to this. And be sober-minded. Now, when we speak about being sober, what we often think about is, is being intoxicated by alcohol. And there is part of what he means here, but there's more than just substance misuse that he's, he, he's referring to here. Because we know that Scripture tells us that drunkenness is a sin, that we shouldn't be getting drunk because it affects the sober-mindedness that Christians should, should have. But there's more to this than just you know, substances. What he goes on to speak about, and we see this from where the argument that he has, he's speaking about don't be intoxicated by the views, the ways, and the thoughts of this world. Do not allow the thoughts of the day dim your mind. I love that verse that speaks about iron sharpens iron. We need to be sharpening one another in, in Christ and in faith. Iron sharpens iron. Do not be kind of drunk-minded by the thoughts, yes, by, you know, substances, but also it's bigger than that. Do not allow the world and the, the, the ways that God has redeemed you from, do not allow that to cloud your view on what is going on. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Regardless of what's happening, regardless of the situations you find yourselves in, regardless of who's shouting loudest in the world, regardless of the propaganda that might be brought to you, keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Be sober-minded. So many people are tossed about by every wind of doctrine, by every thought of the day. They, 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 they go here, they go there, and they're going for the next shiny thing and this thing and that thing. You know, we've got people changing everything in this world. And as followers of Jesus, we cannot, I mean, must not let the noise of this world distract our gaze from Christ. Be sober-minded. Be clearly focused on the gospel, on your Savior, and on your inheritance, regardless of the situations you find yourselves in. Have your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and he says in verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
And that's why I said we, we can see that this is more than just talking about substance misuse when he's talking about sober-minded. Because he, he goes on and he talks about kind of thoughts and um, former ignorance and, and, and ways that, they, that they've been kind of brought from. But before we get to that, one of the things that we, we, we see Peter do here in verse 14 is he develops this, this family theme that we're seeing throughout his letter, which is important. If we think back to verses 3 and 4 in chapter 1, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance. And we spoke about with that, that Peter has he's birthed this family kind of dynamic within his letter. That, that we're not just churchgoers, we're actually part of something much bigger than that. That actually we're part of a family. We're part of God's family. And he's our father. He's born, he, he's caused us to be born again. And we have this wonderful inheritance that is ours through Christ. And he develops that in verse 14 where he now introduces this new dynamic where he speaks about us being children. Those of us who are in Christ have been adopted by faith into God's family, which now makes us his children. Many of you will know the famous quote, obedience is the highest form of worship. What is it Jesus says when he says, if you love me, you will become a member? No. Become a presbytery? No. Give lots of money? No. Sing loud and lovely harmonies? No. If you love me, you will obey my commands. That's what Jesus says. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. As obedient children. And this is the, I love how Peter keeps doing this. And he couldn't really do anything else because his introductory um, couple of verses in verse 2 are just mind-blowing. And really what we see here is this Again, another development where he, he points back to the outworking and the purpose of our election. In verse 2, where he spoke about according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit and of our obedience to Jesus Christ. Remember we said that in that verse, what we see is the origin of our election. It's in the foreknowledge of the Father. The, the, the means of our election or, or how it's affected, how it's worked out is through the sanctification of the Spirit. And in the purpose of our election for obedience to Christ. Because if you love me, you will obey my commands. If you're in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, you know it is a joy to follow God's commands. Those who don't know Jesus, they see it as rules and regulation and all these different red tapes. But for those of us who love Jesus... You, you know it is a, it's a delight to, to, to obey him, to, to follow him, to, to do as he says, to follow his instructions, to follow his word. As the psalmist says in Psalm 119, for I delight in your commandments because I love them. And that Psalm 119, so many times it speaks about the commandments or the statutes or, or the, the, yeah, the commands and teachings of God. But what amazes me is that Nine times in Psalm 119, the psalmist says, it is a delight to follow them. It is a delight to follow your commands because I love them. And what I love and find fascinating is that what Peter is doing here, 
We see Paul do the same thing in Romans chapter 12. Peter has just said that, you know, have your minds fixed on Jesus. Have your minds alert, prepared, sober, so that you do not be conformed. But in Romans 12, we, we, see, we see Paul say the same thing, but just the other way around. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by it testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. They're both saying exactly the same thing, just the other way around. Do not be conformed, Peter says, to the passions of your former ignorance. The exhortation is to not be conformed, but rather be holy, he says. And this is where the, the, the crux of his argument is just now. Be holy. Not to be conformed to the passions of former ignorance. And what he means by that is do not mirror the life and the ways of the world. Do not be guided by what you've been saved from. You are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. So do not be conformed with the passions of former ignorance, but rather be obedient to God and live a life that is holy. What we see from this is that to be a follower of Jesus, we can't keep living as the world does. There needs to be a change. Just as we thought about with the boys and girls from the, the, from the, the, the fireman to the, the train driver, from the the cowboy, the nurse, the, 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 the stormtrooper, when we see them, they look different and we can tell you know, what, they, what they did and, and who they were. So too, when people look at us, they should see fruit blossoming from us from abiding in Christ. They will know that you're my disciples when you love one another. It doesn't say they will know you're my disciples when you preach lovely 45-minute sermons or you've got a lovely five-part harmony, whatever it is. It's when you love one another. So when we come to Christ, there needs to be a change. There is a change. And it needs to be evident. The former ignorance that Peter mentions here is the ignorance that unbelievers have towards God. The way they live in, in, in ignorance towards him. And when Peter uses the word passions here, really what he's meaning is sinful desires. The desires of the flesh. Do not be conformed by the sinful desires of the ways of this world. Don't let them shape you. And you know, what we see here and we see it in our own world as well is that sadly these desires are often found within the church. That's why Peter is writing this exhortation, why he's even needing to mention it. Is that we see these, sometimes we are guided by sinful passions. The passions of the flesh. But what we should be and what we should be bearing and what people should see from us is that we display the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Is that what people see and think when they think of Sandy Hills Parish Church? Because it should be. It's what God's Word says. Don't be conformed to the ways of this world but be holy, he says. Be holy. And what is the example Peter gives for holiness? The example he gives is, you shall be holy 
for I am holy. Friends, God himself is the reason for holiness. And God himself is the example of holiness. And again, we see this theology of election. You've been called, but in verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you are to be holy in all your conduct. Jesus said, by their fruits, you shall know them. We're not saved by good works. Remember, this is, this is um, grounded in the truth of salvation. But when we abide in Christ, fruit comes. D.L. Moody said that a holy life will make the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns, they just shine. Is that not wonderful? Light, um, a holy life will make the deepest impressions. Lighthouses blow no horns, they just shine. Follower of Jesus this morning, does your life look like Christ? Do you yearn to live out the pages of Scripture? Do you let the Bible shape every inch, every fiber of your being? And when we talk about God being holy, what we're saying is he's not like us. He's set apart. He's different. So what does it mean for us to be holy? It means to not be like this world. Do not be conformed to the sinful ways of this world, but be holy. I came across this wonderful acronym. I love acronyms. They help me kind of understand and, and, and realize what things mean. And what I came across this week for the word holy is having our lives yielded. That's what holy means. Having our lives yielded. Yielded unto Christ for the glory of Christ. And then Peter brings back in verse 17 this family dynamic. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. If you're born again, then your father is the judge, is really what he's saying. You're the one who you call father, he's judge. He's judge of the universe, judge over all the world. So why is he saying this? Why is he going from being holy to talking about us having this father who judges impartially? It's further motivation for believers to live holy lives. It's why he's doing absolutely God is loving. Absolutely God is gracious, merciful, good, but he is holy. He's just. He's righteous. He is a God who hates sin. And he is, as we thought about through our Names of God series, he is Elcano. He is the God who is jealous. He is a jealous God. He is jealous for you. He doesn't want to share you with anyone else. He wants you for himself. But this one we call Father, who is the judge, he judges impartially. He doesn't show favoritism. There isn't one set of standards for his children and another set of standards for the world. His, his standards are his standards. And he rewards each one according to their deeds. Isn't it amazing to know that there are rewards in heaven for God's people? But the greatest reward is Christ himself. And this fear that Peter speaks about here, it isn't like living in terror of God, but living in reverence and awe, understanding whose presence it is that we are in. Even in this very moment, the one who spoke this world into being, that's whose presence we're in. It's about living in reverence, never neglecting his holiness 
in light of his graciousness. Do not cheapen grace, but live lives that are holy. And then Peter in verses 18 and 19, and with this, we'll draw our thoughts together this morning to a close. These, these, these words are just incredible. I love, just before we read them, I love that Peter, he starts with this salvation and he goes down into this kind of wee valley bit where he speaks about suffering, comes back up to salvation. He speaks about salvation. He goes down into this exhortation and he goes back up to salvation. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but the, with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. With the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter brings it back to our salvation, for we should see holiness as a result of God's grace and the way of responding to God's love. As believers, we should live in reverence before God in awe of him, knowing that he has redeemed us and I just love the beauty of these words. They need no sermon, really. Friends, you were ransomed. You were bought. If you're in Christ this morning, a price has been paid for your freedom. We think gold and silver are expensive. But man alive. They fall into pale insignificance with the cost that was paid for you. The precious blood of Jesus himself. Far more costly than silver or gold. For these things perish. But you have been bought with a precious price. That is lasting worth that will never perish were ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus himself. Peter reminds us that we have been purchased at such a costly price, which has brought us into God's family for the purpose of obedience to Christ. We must have reverence for the Lord and strive to live a holy life because the one we love, the one who bought us, the one who paid for us, is holy. Let us pray. Jesus, we will never know how much it cost to see our sins upon that cross. We will never know just how precious your blood is. Lord, thank you that we know this. Jesus loved me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. We thank you that in accordance to the foreknowledge of the Father, you shed your blood, Jesus Christ, like a lamb, a perfect lamb without spot or blemish. You have ransomed the redeemed. And Lord, we pray that in this life, that just as the one who has called us to be holy is holy, would you help us to live a life 
as a holy people. To work out our salvation with fear and trembling. To bear fruit from abiding with you. For trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. But to trust and obey. And Lord, as we look to draw our service together to a close. Lord, I ask that as we sing this concluding hymn. Would we just sense your power at work in this place. We find as we pray, Lord, burn up every trace of sin and bring the light and glory in. The revolution now begin. Lord, we ask these things in your precious name. Amen.